Amen. Good evening, church. Um, as Chris said, we are going to be in Romans 7. Thankfully, I do get to avoid some of the landmines that Chris was referring to. Those will be for Chris and Eddie to figure out, but uh, we'll, we'll be tackling our own difficult passage, and uh, thankfully for Chris and for Eddie, I won't have to throw grenades on their arguments this evening, so uh, we'll see what comes of that in the coming weeks, but we are going to be in Romans 7, specifically the first six verses, verses 1 through 6. Let's read those together. It says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while she lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may know you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we, might, we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So we finished Romans 6 last week, and in these first six verses here, really we could tie these verses to the larger context of chapter 6. It's almost like an extension of chapter 6 of what we're going to be dealing with here in the first few verses. And it's important that we understand the context and the framework of what we're dealing with, because sometimes we can take verses, we can take passages of Scripture, and we, we pull them out of the context, and we begin to think of them and interpret them by... What, how they shouldn't be interpreted. So the letter to the Romans is an, is an actual letter written to actual people 2,000 years ago by an actual person named Paul. And there's, there's intention behind why he's writing the letter. There's, there's reasons he's encouraging. He wants to encourage them. He wants to provide them with information. He wants to allow them to assist him in future missionary journeys. And so he's, he's making connections with them, but there's, there's reasoning and there's structure and there's framework behind why he's doing things the way he is. Why does he place certain paragraphs in certain places? Why does he structure his arguments the way that he does? And that's the context of what we're talking about. And so when we read scripture, whether it's someone coming up and expositing scripture and preaching the word of God, or it's you in your home reading the Bible, the context is vital. Because if we pull something out of context, now something means something that Paul never intended it to mean. And it's going to be important for us as we get into the first few verses here because there's, there is a bit of a controversial subject that comes up with verses 1 through 3 when we get into this marriage analogy that I think if we pull those verses out of the context of what Paul's actually doing, we end up heading in directions when it comes to the discussion of marriage, divorce, remarriage, that really Paul's not intending to. And we'll get to that in a few moments. But it needs to be understood that the, the context is key. Interpreting scripture has to flow through what the context is. And the context for chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, actually goes back to chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. And if you, you look in your scriptures, I don't have it up there, it says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And so what, what Paul is going to be getting to is, what does this idea of being under the law mean? And, and being free from under the law 
And so in our context, Paul is really addressing the question in verse 15, where he says, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? The answer he gives in verse 15 and verse 16 is absolutely not. No, we do not continue to sin because we are, we are now no longer under the law, but we are under grace. And so that's his, his first answer. And Chris addressed that last week in verses 15 to 23. And so when you think of the question, though, the question being posed to Paul, we have to acknowledge that there's, there's some sort of logic to it. It kind of makes sense that someone would go this way. Because all of us have been in situations where we've had rules placed on us, right? We've had restrictions. We've had limitations. We've had people, whether it's an employer, a boss, whether it is a parent who has said, no, you cannot do this. Especially if you think of the framework of your child-parent relationship. If you are a parent, you tell your children, no, you will not do this while you're living in my home. If you're a child, your parents have told you, no, you will not do this while you're living in my home. And so what happens when we leave the home? The limits are off. The restrictions are gone. And so now we can begin to do things that maybe we weren't allowed to do before. And so there's this liberating feeling. And, and the idea of the person who's presenting this argument to Paul is, we've been under these restrictions and we're not under them. So can't we just go live however we want? Can't we just go do whatever we want now? An example from my life, um, Elizabeth and I went to a very strict, very conservative Christian college where there was lots of rules. They told you how to dress, for what occasions, what you were allowed to do, what you weren't allowed to do, lots and lots of rules. Um, one of those rules was you, you were not allowed to go to a movie theater. Didn't matter what movie you were seeing, you just weren't allowed to go. That was one of the limitations we had, and we signed up for it so we knew what we were getting into. We graduate from college, a month later we get married and we're on our honeymoon, and what do we do? We go to the movies. We are free. The limits have been removed, the restrictions are gone, we can go do whatever we want. And uh, Elizabeth may have been like, looking over his shoulder like, who's going to come in and bust us? But, uh, but I was more the type that pushed the rules anyway, so it didn't bother me at all. But yeah, when, when you're free of that restriction, it's like, okay, now I'm going to explore. I'm going to do more. And that's the argument that Paul's facing. That's the argument that Paul's addressing. And we can understand it. There's a, there's a theological word, there's a theological name for this, and it's known as antinomianism. Don't expect you to remember that. It basically means without law or against law. And the idea is that someone is now free from the law, and so living in the Spirit, living in grace, they can just go do as they feel the Spirit leads, as they feel that they can, so they can do whatever they want. They are without restriction. They are without law. Paul, though, is not an antinomian. Um, he, he makes the argument in 15 to 23 of chapter 6 when he says, if, if we continue to persist in our sin, then we are enslaving ourselves to the very sin by which we've just said that we are freed from. So, so no, that, that's not valid. Going to live however you want isn't valid because you are just placing yourself under sin again. So you can't do that. Rather, we have been set free from sin to pursue a life of 
willful submission to pursue a life of what it means to be servants to, slaves to righteousness. Joyful obedience to him. So that's the point of Paul's argument, and that puts us in the context, in the framework of what we're looking to study, because from really the beginning of chapter 6 on through this section, he's, Paul's really going to be talking about addressing what does it look like to bear good fruit for God? What does it look like to be holy? What does it look like to do right? What does it look like to bear fruit and live righteously? There are two big apple trees. If you've been to my house and you've driven down the ridiculously long driveway that I hate taking the trash out every week on, there's two giant apple trees. And you would think that's great. You can use the apples for different things. The problem is it's bad fruit because the trees are unhealthy. And so what Paul's looking to address is to say, we are like that tree and we are to produce good fruit. We are to produce good works. We are to do right. We are to live well and live rightly. And the problem is if you connect yourself to the wrong thing, you're ultimately just going to produce bad fruit that leads to death. So his argument as we get into chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 really falls along three ideas. He's going to first talk about the law in relation to and give an analogy of marriage. So marriage and the law. The second one he's going to get into in verses 4 through 6 is really what is, what is the purpose of dying to the law? He's going to talk about this idea of dying to the law. What is the reason for that? And we're going to finish our time really focusing in on, a, and I think an interesting topic, a, a triune foundation of our purpose. So we have a purpose to die to the law. What is the foundation of that? And it ultimately rests in the fact that we have a God who is a trinity, who is one in essence, three in persons, and we'll unpack that towards the end. Paul begins his section by making a declaration, but he puts it in the form of a question. It's a, it's a, the idea is that the, the question assumes a positive. When he says there, do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So it's like Paul saying, you know the law, and you know that the law only applies to a person who is actually alive. We live in a country full of laws, and those laws only apply to us at when we are living. When we have passed, those laws no longer apply. So this is a general principle that Paul's talking about. So whether he's talking about Mosaic law, whether we're talking about Roman law, whether we're talking about American law, when someone passes away from this life, the law no longer binds them. That's this general idea that Paul's conveying, and he uses marriage as an analogy to illustrate this point. We've already read it, so I'm going to summarize it here. Paul mentions wives, and I think you could easily make this applicable to wives and husbands. He's not singling out women for a specific reason, but he's just using this as an analogy. If a wife or a husband were to go live with another person while their spouse is still alive, we would rightly say that that person is an adulterer. That person is living in adultery. They are, they are married to one person, yet they go live with and even attempt to marry someone else. That is adultery. And we will rightly say that that is wrong and that is sin. It violates this marriage covenant that God has created between these two people. However, what Paul says in this analogy is that if a spouse dies, so husband passes away, the wife is now free to go marry whomever she'd like, provided it's a believer and this is a, a Christian woman, whomever she likes, and they are free to do that and not an adulterer. There is no accusation of adultery. That's, that's the simple analogy. That's the breakdown of it. So Elizabeth and I are married. If I were to fall into sin and go pursue a relationship with another woman, I would rightly be called an adulterer. 
if, however, I were to die, Elizabeth is free to marry someone else and not be considered an adulterer. Make sense? Pretty simple analogy. And he's, he's using this analogy to talk about what it means to die to the law. And we're going to look at that in verses 4 through 6. But I want to pause here because these verses do get into a bit of a controversial thing. Um, there are people who take the position based on these verses that if, if you are to ever divorce, if, if a marriage is to be separated, if, if a husband and wife are to divorce, that you should never remarry again. There are people who take that position. I do not. I'll explain why, but some people do. So I think we need to talk about that because what we believe the scripture says should influence and dictate our lives. If the Bible legitimately says if two people are divorced, they should not remarry for the remainder of their lives, then that should be how we live. But we have to actually look through the context, look through what Paul's saying and determine, is this actually what Paul means? Is this actually what Paul's saying? So a few points to think about in relation to marriage and then this whole idea of divorce and remarriage in the context of specifically this passage. First and foremost, God desires your marriage, if you are married, to thrive and reflect Christ in the church. It's the first thing, foundational, all of it. That's what God's desire is for you in your life, in your marriage. Marriage is an institution that God has designed, and so divorce of any kind, God hates. He says that specifically in the book of Malachi. God hates divorce. So marriage is a covenant relationship, and so God desires the man and the woman to stay together, but if a divorce should happen, God's preference, what he would want, is for there to be some level of reconciliation to take place. He would, he would desire that to happen. However, we, we know there's sin involved. There's, there's different factors that are involved, and so reconciliation is not always possible. There, there are situations where it just isn't simply a possibility, whether one of the spouses has abandoned another person, whether another spouse has gone and remarried someone else. It may not always be possible to reconcile, but the desire of God is for marriages to be united, marriages to stay together, and people to reconcile if there are instances of separation or divorce. If you are married, this is coming from the text, and you are involved in any type of physical, emotional relationship with someone who is not your spouse, the Bible will rightly say you are an adulterer. That is correct. I think we can clearly see that Paul is not making an incorrect statement when he says that in Romans chapter 7. So if you are involved in a relationship with someone else, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, and you are, and that person is not your spouse, we would rightly say that you are living in sin, you are living in adultery, it's wrong, and you should confess that sin to God, to your church, and to your spouse. Divorce and remarriage, though, are debated topics among Christians. And I would say they're debated topics among good theologians as well. Um, one of my favorite preachers, one of my favorite theologians is John Piper. Um, if you're familiar with him, great. If not, that's okay too. Um, I would recommend you look him up because he has a lot of good things to say. We differ on this topic. He and I are not on the same page. He interprets these verses differently than I do, but I still respect him. I still would value listening to him preach a sermon on these verses because I think good, good theologians, good people differ on certain things. And so this is not an issue that would rise to the level of meeting to say, I can never listen to him again. Or if you take a different position than I do on this, we need to separate from each other. That's, that's not the thing. This, this is not a top tier issue of doctrine and theology that we need to understand. 
But it is important to understand because, like I said, it influences how we live. It influences the things that we say we are going to do. If, if people are going to pursue marriage after there's divorce, but the Bible says not to, then maybe we need to pause that. And so we want to understand what the scripture actually says. And what I would say, and I'll present a few points of argument for, is you cannot use this analogy, Romans chapter 7, 1 through 3, you cannot use it to argue that marriage after divorce is wrong. A few reasons why. Paul's point in the context is simply to use marriage as an example. That's it. He is using marriage as an example to prove a point about law and sin that we'll get into in verse 4 through 6. He is not trying to write some detailed explanation about divorce and remarriage. And to prove that, the word divorce isn't even in the passage. He's not even talking about a situation where two people have divorced and then one has gone and gotten remarried. He's talking about a situation where two people are married and someone has gone and lived with and even maybe pursued marriage with someone who, while they are still currently married, that's the context of Paul's analogy. So we're not talking about a situation that we would consider to be typical divorce and remarriage. That's not the context we're dealing with. Um, The other interesting thing that we have to consider is There's other scriptures to support the idea that God allowed for remarriage on other grounds than just death. Because that's the argument from people. They would say, if you get divorced, the only way you could remarry someone in this life is if your first spouse has passed away. That's the argument. But there's scriptures that actually argue against that. Um, Deuteronomy 24, 1-2, the very law that Paul's most likely citing here says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house if she does and becomes another man's wife. So the, the very in, implicit, actually declared within the law itself is that if a man were to divorce his wife, the wife is remarrying someone else. It's almost assumed by Moses and God as they write this law. So you can't say remarriage is only for someone when their spouse has passed away if the law itself is allowing for it. Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 2. Jesus' words, Matthew 19, 7 through 9. Context here is that people are coming to him, questioning him. They say, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And he says, it's because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So in the context of what we're talking about, there's a provision that Jesus even provides that says, in the case of some type of sexual immorality, some type of adultery, remarriage is acceptable. So even even Jesus himself is giving some provisions for this idea of remarriage after divorce. And then the last scripture we'll look at is Paul again, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Um, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The idea is of not enslaved is no longer bound. And I think rightly understood to be no longer bound to marriage. If, If someone is to, and and I would also say, rightly, this, this points to issues of abandonment, where a spouse has left and abandoned their husband or wife, that that 
remaining spouse, husband or wife, is able to then remarry and do so biblically, not in fear that they are violating some biblical command. So all that to say, to wrap this up, you cannot use these verses to make a, a normative claim for the church to say there is no remarriage after divorce, period, end of discussion. You can't do it. I don't think you can do it in the context of what we're talking about, and I don't think we can do it um, based on what other scriptures say because there are other scriptures that allow for these things. And so we have to look at the context of what Paul's doing, and we have to look at the overall context of the whole Bible when we start to think of these things because it does influence people. There are going to be situations where divorce happens and someone wants to be remarried, and if we're telling them the Bible says no, absolutely not, we better be sure we know what we're talking about. Because if we're not, we're leading people down a path that they, that they shouldn't go. And 1 Corinthians 7 even says it wouldn't be good for some people to remain single. So we have to think about these things because we can damage people's lives if we start to take positions that the Bible doesn't actually take. So understanding and reading things in context is very important. So that was just the first three verses of the analogy, and I'm done 20 minutes in. So um, hopefully we can keep moving quicker here. We're going to go to four through six um, because Paul is using this analogy of marriage ultimately to make a theological point. His reasoning here is that he wants to make a point about why it is that we die to the law. What is the purpose to dying to the law? And he, he mentions this in verses four through six. He begins this section. He says, you also have died. It's a passive verb, meaning that the action is being performed to the subject. We are the subject. You have died. So someone else is doing the action of dying, of us dying to the law. We are not doing it ourselves. We are not the active agent in this process of death. Rather, we are the passive agent, and someone else is actually putting us underneath of and dying to the law. We see the detail of that in the following phrase. We die to the law how? Through the body of Christ. The, the instrument through which we die to the law is the death of Christ. Just like when Elizabeth plays the piano and we hear notes, that is the instrument through which we hear these notes. Just like when Frank plays the drums, the way we hear this beat is through the instrument of a drum set. In the same way that we die to the law, we do it through the instrument of the death of Christ. And that's important for us because Paul's continuing to do this. He's, he's done this really since, since the start of the book. But what he's doing is he's, he's taking the benefits of the gospel, all that we know to be the beauty of the gospel, and he's rooting it back in a historical event. He's saying all the stuff we've heard about, justification and union with Christ and freedom from the slavery of sin, and now death to the law, all comes back to an event where Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of sins. And so in redemptive history, we have creation, fall, redemption. That is that historical event where we can point ourselves back to and say, how do I know I am dead to the law? Because Christ died for me. And it's in, it's in there that we find redemption. It's in there that we find the forgiveness of sins. And it's in the cross where we find death to the law. And we understand the purpose in the following phrase. The purpose for why we have to die to the law is that we may belong to another. We would think, if we were writing something similar to Paul, 
that we would say, you die to the law, die to this set of rules in order to belong to this other set of rules. But that's not what Paul says. He says, you die to this set of rules so that you can now belong to, be joined to, the imagery is marriage, you can be married to a person. And a person that scripture says right afterwards in verse four, a person who has been raised from the dead. We are not joined to a list of rules. We are not joined to some endless responsibility and duty that we have to maintain in this relationship. We are joined to and united to the all-glorious, all-providing, all-satisfying Jesus Christ who has risen and lives forever. And what that means for us is that our salvation never ends. There isn't a point where our salvation ceases, where, where eternal life ends for us. We are united with Christ forever because he is the one who has conquered death. And as, as he has risen from the dead, he will never die again. And so our eternity, our salvation in Christ is secure. Verse four continues and he says that, that our marriage to Christ, we are, we are no, our old husband, the law has died. We are now married to our new husband, Christ. And in our marriage to Christ, we are to produce fruit for God. I think we have to ask the question of what does it mean to produce fruit? What does fruit actually mean? And it's helpful for us because Paul gives us a good clarification in verse 6. He says in this parallel phrase that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. There's this connection that Paul wants us to make that, that bearing fruit for God has some type of connection in serving in the Spirit. And hopefully your minds are going to, and they should, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, gives us the fruit of the Spirit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. These are the characteristics of God. These are, these are the very core of, of who God is. And so in, in the characteristics of God, as we are united with Christ, we are empowered by this spirit to bear these things for him. Namely, I would say that first one, and we're going to get back to this, but we are to bear fruit, namely love. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. But practically, this only happens, how? By being connected with Christ. By being connected with Christ positionally, as we have been justified, as we are united to him through his death, but also connected to Christ functionally. John chapter 15, verse five, pretty familiar section of scripture. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to see good fruit in your life, if you want to be loving, you want to be joyful, you want to be kind, you want to be patient, you want to express and convey this, the fruits of the Spirit in your life, it starts by being in the Word and growing in Christ. If you want to be a better husband, a better wife, draw near to God and be in His Word. You want to be a better co-worker, you want to be a better parent, you want to be a better child, you want to be a better sibling, you want to be a better friend, draw near to Christ by being in the Word. If you say, I don't want any of those things, I, don't, I just don't care. All of life's happening. I, don't, I just don't care about that right now. The response is the same. Draw near to Christ by being in the word. If you don't 
draw near to Christ, if you are not abiding in him, verse five tells us, we will ultimately be connected to something that leads us to death. So if we, if we want to be conveying and giving and showcasing the fruits of the spirit, we only can do it by abiding in Christ. And that happens through reading scripture, that happens through prayer, that happens by being connected with his people, whether that's here by worshiping together on a Sunday or being connected in a gospel-centered community, or it's involved with just connecting with other Christians who are going to encourage you in your faith enjoying the good things that God has given us. These are, the, these are the means by which God has given us to grow in him, to dive deeper into him, to grow in love, and be able to showcase the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, to do what Paul is saying that we need to do. And most likely it's going to be incremental growth. Most of the time we're not going to see this place where we're here and then all of a sudden there's a huge leap here. It's going to be incremental. It's going to be small growth. It's going to be we don't get mad as often at our kids when they're riled up and they're getting on our nerves. Maybe we begin to repent and seek forgiveness from God faster when we see and recognize sin in our lives than we did before. We don't turn to addictions, substances, sex, food. And if we do turn to those things, it's less frequently and we're quick to repent and we're quick to seek forgiveness and we're quick to, to seek help. We don't complain as much about the things happening in our lives, but we actually find ourselves growing more content and thankful for what God has done, good or bad, because we know that even in the bad, God is producing in us something good because he's helping us grow and produce more fruit. Rather than turning to entertainment and ease for pleasure, we pursue pleasure by serving others, caring for other people, growing in our knowledge of Christ. And these are all incremental little steps that we can take. We were in our GCC this past week and Brett said something that I thought was helpful um, when we were discussing this, this kind of idea of how do we grow. And he said, sometimes it's just in something small. You're dealing with an anger problem and, and when you catch it on something small, address it. And, and that will help influence you in the future as you move forward and you encounter something bigger that makes you angry. Maybe you're able to, to handle that a little better when you start with something small and address it small. So I would encourage you with that. Start with something small in your life, a sin that you recognize and say, I, I really struggle getting a handle on this. I'm getting angry too much in these situations. So maybe there's an opportunity as we think about those situations to address that anger when it comes for something small. So then when something bigger comes, we're able to handle it a little bit better. But it's going to be incremental. It's going to be smaller growth. I mentioned a few minutes ago that what I think Paul has in mind generally is the fruit of the Spirit here, but specifically I think he's dealing with the idea of love. That the idea of bearing fruit for God, serving in the Spirit, is that our lives are marked by love. Hopefully I can make this clear because it can get a little challenging and confusing to understand. If we were to summarize the law, we would summarize it with Probably one word, love. I think Romans actually helps us here. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So if the law is summed up in love, the natural question is why do we need to die to this law then? 
if the fulfillment, if fulfilling the law actually is love. And I think Romans chapter seven, verse five helps us here. It says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You see, while we were in our flesh, so before dying to the law, we, we meet the law with our sin. And what ends up happening in a bit of a paradox is we actually use the law to produce more sin. We'll kind of break this down a little bit. Paul says that our sinful passions are aroused by the law. So our sin meets this expectation that says, you need to live this way. You need to do this thing. Meets this expectation of the law that says, you need to love. And instead of loving, our sinful flesh actively disobeys it. Actively runs from loving and actually does not love and hates others. So before, where we were just operating on our own in our sinful flesh, doing what we wanted and hadn't encountered the law, now we encounter something that says you need to love and we actively disobey it. And so we've taken the law, which is holy and righteous, chapter 7, verse 12 says that, which is holy and righteous, and it says we're going to use this law that tells us to love and we're going to do the exact opposite, therefore producing more sin than we otherwise would have had we never encountered the law. Hopefully all that makes sense, because that's a lot of words that uh, may not make sense. And I think it's helpful to understand what it means to actually live in the flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, again, I think helps us here. For the mind is set, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Because in our flesh, what are we? We are self-serving. We are hostile to God. We are an authority unto ourselves. We don't want anyone, especially God, telling us what to do. And so God's law comes along and says, love others. And our sin meets that and it resists it. It refuses it. So instead of loving others, we actively disobey what the law has said for us to do. And we act contrary to the law. We actually increase the very sin that the law would condemn. The law would say anything that is not loving is sinful. And so when we encounter the law and then do the opposite of the law, we are then producing something that is unloving. And we are increasing our sin. And so this is why we need to die to the law because sinful flesh that encounters the law only produces more sin. And verse five tells us that it ultimately leads to bearing fruit for death. It's our old self, that hostile, rebellious self that needs to die with Christ in order to serve in the, in the new way, serve in the new way of the Spirit and actually love properly. There's an illustration that I've heard. I can't remember who it was um, that, that mentioned this illustration before, but I think it's helpful for us. Um, imagine you are standing in front of a house. Inside the house is a treasure, You obviously want to get in the house because you want the treasure, but the door is locked. When you go to the door above the lock, there is a whole list of combinations. Do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not lie, all of the law. And it says that the combination has to be done this way, perfectly. You have to put the combination all the way through in the perfect manner. If you make one mistake, the lock's going to reset. You're not going to be able to get in the house. So you start to turn the locks, turn right, turn left, do it this way, do it this way, add this combination to try to get into this house. But you make a mistake and you mess up. So the lock resets. You got to start over. 
So you're, you're going again, trying to get it all perfect. And then you remember as you go through, you know what? I was supposed to turn it right last time, but when I turned it left, I actually liked that better. And so you turn it left again. So now you're, you're actively disobeying what the thing is telling you to do. And in, this, in the same way, that's what we do with the law, where we come to this combination of things that we're supposed to do to get the treasure inside, and we actually find ourselves enjoying the stuff that goes the exact opposite of what the combination, what the, the lock wants us to do. So we are actively disobeying what this thing says, but we look a little above that combination, all of these lists of rules, and it says, the only way to get in the door is to die to the door. You have to die to, your, to the door. You have to die to this law in order to get through to get this treasure. And so we do that. We die to the law. Why? Because of what Jesus has done through his death, we die to the law. And then Jesus comes along and he actually unlocks the door because he is the fulfillment of the law. And he carries us into this house, into this treasure. And what is there for us when we enter the house? It's him. He's the treasure. And so it's in that entering through, dying to the law, dying to this, this door in this analogy that we find our treasure, Jesus. But that only happens when we stop trying to turn all the little knobs and do all of the stuff and actually die to the law in Christ when we submit ourselves to him, and so we're no longer slaves to sin, we're no longer slaves to the law, but we are now under Christ, united to him. And when we become united to him and when we are enjoying our treasure, that's when we can bear the fruit of love for God. We're gonna get to our last, last idea here. We've looked at marriage and the law. We've looked at what is the purpose of dying to the law. And I said that, we are going to have a foundation here, a triune foundation for our purpose. Takes us back to verses four through six. Because so I think to understand how we can truly bear the fruit of love, we have to understand something integral about our God. And that is that he is a trinity. We see it in the scriptures here in verses four through six. We see Father, Son, who is Christ, and God the Spirit. And what I want us to walk away in these last five or six minutes is this, that we have a deeper affection and love and delight in who God is, not simply what he's done, but who he is and his very nature as triune, as a trinity. Because it's important to know that this doctrine of the trinity is not just some far off doctrine that we struggle to understand sometimes, but it actually impacts us in a very real way impacts how we live. It impacts what we believe because he is triune. He is one in essence, three in person. He's God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit. And it's in the Trinity and in a Trinitarian understanding of who God is that we find the very foundation of love because God is love because he is a Trinity. There is a mutual, complete love that happens between the father, the son, and the spirit that has happened for all eternity that if we strip that away from God and say he's not a trinity, we lose what love actually is. So if we imagine a God who is monotheistic, that is one God, love that has happened for eternity has been what? Self-focused. 
There's no other person to love. If there's no Trinity and it is a single God, there is only one person to love, and that is himself. And so love turns inward, and we would say rightly that an inward turn love is a selfish love, is a narcissistic love. And so from eternity past, this imaginary God has loved himself, and so he doesn't know true love. And so in creating this world, what has he created? He's created a bunch of people who can just be his servants and obey his rules. There's no relationship there. There's no love for those people. It's simply a love for himself that we, now his creation, can serve him and boost his ego. This God is also distant. He wants nothing to do with his creation because there is no relationship. A single, a single person God, a monotheistic God, is not a God who would ever sacrifice himself for the sins of his people. He just wouldn't do it. Why would he? His, his ultimate affection, his ultimate love is for himself. So why would he give of himself? Why would he sacrifice himself for other people? He wouldn't do it. And so the only hope we would have in this situation is that we can try to do as much as we can and hope that God finds us favorable in the end. That's our only hope in a situation where God is not a trinity. When we think of heaven and what that would look like, eternal existence would ultimately be separation from God because why would a selfish, self-absorbed, all about himself God, ever want to actually spend eternity with us. He wouldn't. And so heaven is just yet another place for those who do enough stuff to go to and ultimately still find separation from God. Our God, though, is different. Our God in Trinity has known true love. And it's the Father's nature, his very nature is to overflow with love for the Son, and true to his nature, what he has done in creation is he's created people so that he can love them more. He's created us so that he can love us. He's created us so that he can share his love that he has shown to the Son and show that same love and affection for us. A triune God is a God who creates us in his image so that not only can we be loved, but then we can share that love with other people. A triune God is a God who is willing to sacrifice of himself by sending Christ to the cross so that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, would die for us. We just read it in Romans 5. It's while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In that, in that he demonstrated his love. It's in a triune God where he has prepared for us a future home where we will be with him forever, and he's not distant. He's prepared a place so that when we go to heaven, we are with him. The ultimate treasure, the one in the house, the one that we get now, we get fully one day because he's designed it that way because he loves us. And if he wasn't a trinity, if there wasn't Father, Son, and Spirit, he would not know love, and we would be damned. We would have no hope. But the fact that he is a trinity is the reason why we have hope. It's the reason why the cross matters. It's the very nature of God that he is loving and that he loves in Trinity. And so the very love he has for his son is the very love he has for us. 
And it's within that framework, it's within that context that we can then live in a new way in the spirit where we can love others and we are, we are not just in loving others trying to fulfill a law, but we're actually showcasing the very nature of God so that when, when I am loving to my spouse, even when she doesn't deserve it, I am showing the very nature of God. When we love our neighbor that we just want to avoid, we are showing the very nature of God. When we love that coworker who just gets on our nerves, we're showing the nature of God. When we love that person in the church who is hurting, we are showing the very nature of God because he is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, and is love. And that's the only way it could be. If he wasn't that, we would not know how to love and we would not know how to be loved. So this is why we have to die to the law. We have to die to the law so that we can be united to a loving, triune God and then in the spirit share his love with the world. We represent a unique God. Our God in Trinity is unlike any God that's out there. And we represent a unique God and when we love others, we represent him well. And that's what Paul wants us to do, represent him well by bearing fruit in love for God. So I trust that when we come back to Romans 7 in GCC discussions, in personal discussions, you will come back with a reminder that we serve a unique God who loves us because he is a trinity. And we have a privilege to now live in the spirit. And in living in the spirit, we can show others love as well. Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you are a trinity and we thank you for that. Your very character and your nature flow out of you in being a trinity. And while this is complex, this is difficult to understand, our human minds struggle here to comprehend the greatness of your nature, we are thankful. We are thankful because in trinity you are loving and it's a way to glimpse your beauty. We thank you that you have loved us in Christ so that we are no longer dead to sin, we are no longer under the law, we are now dead to the law, freed from sin, and instead united to Christ, lavished with love. And you do that, God, so that we can then, through your spirit, pour out your love to others. Gift us with grace as we finish this evening. Gift us with grace as we take communion together. Amen. The music team's going to come out, and we're going to sing a song together. Um, when they are finished, we will participate in communion together as one church. Um, I invite you, if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that you would participate with us. Perhaps even for the first time this evening, you've said, I trusted in Christ this evening. I, I desire him to be the forgiveness of my sins. I would invite you to participate with us as well tonight for the first time. So we'll sing a song, come back together, and we will take communion as one church.